Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Episode 15. Mm. Yeah. Can you believe? I believe it. <laughs> well, now the weekly thing, we're just cranking through them. I feel like because I uh, was listening to Adele, I have this like very gospel mindset. Mm-hmm. I was like, episode 15 in my head. I was like, hallelujah. <laughs> nice. Did you ever do the thing where you sing like a pop song but you do it in the style of opera or in the style of gospel and it's like a heavy metal song or whatever absolutely (laughs) i love doing that as a kid but not just that i'll do very weird things to songs (laughs) uh more so when i had a daily commute of well if you go round trip like an hour and a half every day yeah where I would just be in my car and it's like, I'm going to sing the Star Spangled Banner, but as Britney Spears. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <I> say, <laughs> can you see? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of that gets mixed in. It's fun. So dark, but funny. Mm-hmm. I've been watching The Great Season 2. Is it good? It is so good. I haven't started watching that yet, but it's on my list. I hope people are watching it. It's like transitioning from the title slide normally has an asterisk that says an occasionally true story. Uh-huh. And like as this season's been going, one of the asterisks is like a mostly untrue story. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good. Uh, it's on my list. Nick Holt. Um, that's how you say his last name? Mm-hmm. It's pleasing to the eyes, my <laughs> eyes. <laughs> he's a star. I mean, he's probably the star of the show. I, Elle Fanning does a great job, too, but his comedic timing, and specifically his facial expressions. Really? <laughs> I've never seen him in a comedy, I don't think. I mean, I have, not that I've seen him in a ton of things, but... Well, and it's like an extremely bloody comedy. Lots of beheaded people. Mm-hmm. But he is like a simplistic, a simple-minded, fun-loving, sociopathic emperor slash former emperor. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and it's just weird knowing like a bit of the real history of Catherine the Great. Right. And then seeing this version. <laughs> But she's also pregnant, and just the way the doctors talk is so funny. I mean, it's funny, but it's also horrific because this was, like, real things. But, like, one character's like, well, yeah, for the pregnancy, you have to keep this frog on your stomach for two hours a day. (laughs) And then the doctor's like, this is such idiot stuff. You have to lick this rusty spoon. Everybody knows that. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's like, because the purple bile (laughs) I wonder what things today will one day be our version of the frog on the belly. A ghost or a doctor in the 1800s. It was so easy to just be like, well, yeah, you have ghosts in your bones. So you need to take this cocaine and call me tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Throw in some cupping and leeches and you'll be all set. 
I mean, people still do cupping. I don't know. Mm. I've never done it. I'm worried about the weird cup hickeys. <laughs> yeah, I'm not into that. I bruise really easily. I would have them for like six months. <laughs> well, and of course, the older I get, like the longer anything is to heal, including a bruise. Yes, yes. But, you know, I do, you know, we always talk about our personality tests and how we're the same. And I think we are similar in this regard too, that we're kind of, I think in the big five personality factors, it's called openness. And I score pretty high in openness, which at the extreme is linked to like conspiracy theories and, you know, like all sorts of woo-woo-ness, but I'm definitely above average. So I, I know that there are things that I don't know and I don't understand and I'm open to explanations that maybe we just haven't been able to scientifically explain yet. So I did, went after having our first child, we were slow to get pregnant for the second time which, I mean, I was 41, so not a huge surprise. But um, I went to the doctor and I was like, you know, should I take this or that? And the doctor was like, honestly, try acupuncture because it really has worked for my patients. Like, let's do that first. And I was like, are you sure? Because, like, I'm getting cobwebs in my ovaries. Like, time is of the essence. And she was like, yeah. So I went to a place. I took some Chinese herbs. I got poked all over and howdy presto baby number two so you know sometimes stuff that doesn't seem to make much sense like i don't understand sticking little needles all over your body but um you know that or something else that happened simultaneously worked well and i'm a firm believer in the power of the mind Mm. so like the acupuncture could have physically worked or the acupuncture could have mentally worked Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah totes and it's like well it doesn't matter which version because it worked it worked yeah and it's relaxing you go in and they don't hurt you can't feel anything so it's basically just a time to sit and relax very different from acupuncture but i was in a therapy session and the therapist was pretty hippy dippy (laughs) and this is just speaking to my closedness Um, are you low on openness no i'm actually pretty high but i like to shut some things down (laughs) (laughs) and it was it was guided meditation and i'd never done it before and i was like oh Oh my God, you want me to do this? <laughs> like really, I roll, I roll, I roll. I was like, whatever, fine. I, I was not like this. I am so polite and non-confrontational. I was yeah. like, oh, I, I, I've, I've never tried that. I guess we could have a shot of But in my head, I was like, ugh, of course. <laughs> and then we did it. And it was life-changing. It was so good. Yeah. And I was there for anxiety, Mm -hmm. of course. (laughs) And as I'm like, meditation is so stupid. And then we did an exercise. I didn't know how long, but she timed me, and I had to count my breaths, and I breathed like 29 times. Uh And then after the guided meditation, 
she timed me again and I counted my breath and I breathed 10 times and both spans were 60 seconds. Wow. That's amazing. And I've meditated ever since. I was like an immediate convert. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, meditation, I think, has a lot of scientific evidence. I don't know that anybody really totally understands why it works, but I think there's pretty strong evidence that it does work. Because we re- there's so much we don't understand about the brain. Uh, yeah. I feel like I had some weed or something because I'm like, and we really don't know about the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking about openness. <laughs> uh, we need to do our big fives and compare those. I learned that scientists have no idea where eels came from. (laughs) And I have not forgotten about it. So they're just like a separate thing on like the tree of life. They're just like a bush over on their own. Biologically, I think we still don't understand eel reproduction or where eels come from. (laughs) I mean... I thought it was a joke. I heard someone else say it, maybe on a podcast. And then so I was Googling and I was like, ooh, don't like this. You know, just from the gates of hell, they slipped out. <laughs> well, in the, I don't know. I've always heard like just the, I do think this is more of a joke, but maybe some people believe it, that octopi are aliens. Why are they on their own evolutionary bush too? I think they're pretty pretty on their own but just like the reality of them the eight arms tentacles and or spikes the incredible camouflage their super high intelligence that like we could be sharing this planet with animals that are aliens and not even know that, it yeah like came a long time ago mm-hmm. i'm like yeah that's i mean speaking of being open i guess we're really flown into that this is the type of like conspiracy thing I could get on board with or enjoy but QAnon has really killed my desire to publicly talk about enjoying conspiracies yeah. it's like no not those the silly ones the fun ones and also the ones that are not fun but I think are possible right but I guess that's it's... what it is is like where you draw the line of what's possible because I think they do think it I mean right I mean, I watched a video of these freaks standing on the bridge in Dallas where, like, JFK was killed, singing Michael Jackson songs, waiting for JFK Jr. to arrive, because he's also apparently arriving with Michael Jackson, who is alive and is going to help Trump somehow. Wow. I mean, yeah, there's not a clear line, but clearly these people have crossed (laughs) it. That feels like, I don't know, like brainwashing or... Oh, no, it is brainwashing. Both or I don't know. I mean, when you have angry people, desperate people, and people with... uh, Not IQ, but just like, you know, dumb as rocks. Well, it's, it's, it's intentional. Like, you know, there's the IQ and then there's how ignorant you are. Yeah. And these QAnon people, I mean, it's the whole sunk cost fallacy thing of they are so desperate to be right, they'll believe anything because if they stop believing, it'll show how they've, like, destroyed their lives, destroyed their families. Yeah. Like those people who gave away all their money before the world was going to end in 2008. Remember that? 
Yeah. Like, yeah. How do you accept that you've been so wrong about something so huge? Well, that's when you have to just follow along when they're like, oh, the Mayan calculation was actually wrong. It's in 10 years. And then when that one doesn't happen, they'll be like, oh, and here's the reason this was different. Or you could always call it a test. Right. Or you just kind of like do the gradual fade and be like, that never happened. I don't, you know, like 15 years later, who even remembers? I don't, I think you miss, you're misremembering that. Oh, that's exactly Mormonism in a nutshell to me. Uh, Yeah. Is, oh my God, I can't even tell you all the things that I grew up hearing were anti-Mormon lies that now the organization of the Mormon church has had to say is actually true because people have the internet. Oh, wow. I I mean, with my own mother, that's like, oh no, I've always known that. Hmm. Like Joseph Smith having multiple wives was always a lie. Mm -hmm. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. And then they secretly release it. The New York Times finds it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) publishes it. Yeah. And then my mom's like, oh no, I've always known that but they didn't have sex (laughs) it's like Mm -hmm. you liar (laughs) but i think the brain is so powerful the brain plays tricks on itself to protect itself just like after a trauma the brain you know goes into shock to protect itself or dissociates or whatever i do think that in little ways that happens all the time like somebody would be like you know do you remember in 1998 when you said to me, blah, blah, blah. And like, they remember it word for word because you hurt their feelings or whatever. And you're just like, that doesn't sound like something I would say, you know, but like, you don't actually have a memory of it because it didn't mean the same thing to you. But in your Mm -hmm. mind, like it can't be right because it doesn't line up with who you are today and your consciousness, you know? And then the flip side that memories are changeable and every time you remember something, you're actually changing the memory. Yeah. So if that person fixated on what you said, the more they remembered it, the more it could have changed. Yeah. But this is simple stuff of like, did he or did he not have multiple wives? And the answer was, no, that's a lie. And now the answer to the same question is, I've always known the answer was yes. But here's why it wasn't bad. The cognitive dissonance is nuts. I mean, that's the brain is crazy. The brain is a crazy thing. Super powerful. Well, speaking of high thoughts, I always think about how, like, I've had a couple physical traumas in my life and how my brain essentially said, no, you can't really handle this. So here's a false memory of what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, even a simple one of like, I landed on my head doing a flip as a kid and um, my body crashed over me and I broke my sternum and I was having seizures. Oh. And my brain's memory was sort of out of body, very calmly sitting there and mm-hmm. telling everybody I was fine. Mm-hmm. So the idea that there is a part of my brain that is in control of what the me version of my brain remembers. Mm -hmm. So like there's a higher authority in my own brain that was like, this memory is too traumatic. You need to not know it happened this way. Mm -hmm. 
is so scary to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I get, like, there's not one thing. Like, the brain is a million different functions happening at once. But just the idea that uh, the unconscious part of your brain can be like, actually, it would probably not be good for Kirsten to remember this. So here's a new memory we created for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or we're just going to completely zap this part out. Like, for me, I just have big chunks of my childhood that I don't remember. And, like, not a normal amount. I have years that... I mean, I remember stuff, like, where I lived. I remember the story of my life. But I don't have any, like, real memories during big pieces. So, yeah. So, my brain was just like, this is all really icky. We're just going to wipe all of this away yeah the brain man the brain (laughs) uh amazing the listeners it's like eight in the morning my time i am extremely sober yes (laughs) this is just me on a normal day we're doing a super early record today andrew's my hero (laughs) But yeah, I uh, I could talk about this forever. Just the randomness of life. <laughs> I know for sure. Well, I mean, it is random. I mean, look at us—we're just here, two people, alone in rooms, talking over—I don't even know what technology that I don't even fully understand. <laughs> I I I like. Well, I guess I, w- I would say this in public as I'm saying it right now, recording into a podcast, but <laughs> I don't know how any technology <laughs> works. <laughs> I mean, conceptually, sure. But like, so I just press some buttons and through some numbers and a satellite in outer space, we can speak in real time. No, I do not understand any of that. I know. That's where I got hung up. I was like, so were we on airwaves or wires? Or I don't even know what, how we're transmitting. (laughs) I mean, immediately it's wires. But then beyond that, I don't know. It's a little like Zoolander when they're banging on the computer to find the file. (laughs) But it happens so fast that we can respond in real time. Yeah. And how does a camera work? <laughs> a digital one. I get film a little bit, but like a lens just looks at something and recreates it. So that's what I mean by like I don't know how technology works. So I, I don't know how any of it works. I worked for a little while as a technical editor at a place that made uh, stuff for things like cameras. And there are sensors, and I know a little bit about them because my work was editing the, um, what are they called? The, the specification sheets, you know? So it's like CMOS sensors, and, but yeah, I don't really get it. I don't know. But how do they see? How do they sense the color of a million different colors? I mean, and I get, I don't even understand color. Like, that nothing has color. It only reflects color. Like, I don't even get it at that level, so. (laughs) And listener, I will stop you here. 
I too understand the irony of me five minutes ago saying that everyone on earth is stupid and then admitting that I don't know how a single bit of technology works. (laughs) But we have our domains where we are experts and that is not it. (laughs) I hear you loud and clear. You don't need to tweet me. (laughs) Hey, someone who understands CMOS sensors and digital cameras, let us know. Like, in toddler terms. I would like to know. I mean, there's Google is literally right there. (laughs) But I don't want to research. I just want to know. It's very boring, too. I feel like I know a lot about the things that I personally find interesting. I personally find that level of detail boring. I like tech in terms of apps and, like, user and end-user kind of stuff. But... Like, I don't need to know about zeros and ones and waves and CMOS sensors. But the fact that they're in the process of through computer chips into the brain, giving people sight without the use of their eyes, like bypassing the eyes, is unfathomable to me. Are you making that up? Is that real? No, that is real. (laughs) Like, using sensors, so basically, like, because your eyes don't see your eyes are just information gatherers your brain processes the information to Mm -hmm. see sort of how i suppose a camera processes the data to recreate a picture Mm -hmm. so our eyes aren't actually the things that are seeing they're sensors gathering data that our brain is processing to see so scientists are working on a method to for folks whose eyes don't work to plug right into the brain and have like man-made sensors that are then processing information that folks would be able to see like their brain could turn into pictures and vision without eyes that's pretty cool Uh. so before we get into our episode we have a five-star review (laughs) this one is from colleenish yay Loving the research, the stories, and the banter. Great company. Thoughtful and riveting macabre. Really enjoying the discussions and tangents between the hosts. They sound as interested in the topics as the audience. In the words of Kirsten, I'm just going to say it. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) I was able to get rid of the whoa habit. That was like only the first few episodes, but maybe I should bring it back. Some things deserve a whoa. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just easily fascinated, but I find a lot of things fascinating. And that's great. <laughs> I think so. Life would be so fucking boring. Can you imagine? It's like, oh, yeah, I'm not curious about that at all. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's just, I mean, we've talked about it many a time, but like the Wikipedia rabbit hole. And when you're like, so again, I've, I've like wondered my whole life. I don't understand how a camera works never gonna google it but i have like spent hours on the most useless bit of information (laughs) i bought a book once that was called um the importance of what you're interested in and of course i never read it because i have adhd so i buy a lot of (laughs) books and then don't read them but it seemed interesting and maybe one day i will when my kids are grown i'm gonna read every book i own Yes. And then um, I breezed past it, but 
Thank you, Colleenish. That was so very nice oh, yes. of you. It's amazing. It's amazing. We are as interested, I think, or maybe more sometimes. And that's when, I don't know, just people hit fast forward, like ten, a little 10 second. Mm. Yeah, just as, are they done? Are they still talking about how technology works? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but if you uh, want to help us take down the algorithm. Yes. <laughs> five-star reviews to help other people find this show and then we'll read them hurt the algorithm yeah this is actually us taking a stand against facebook even though they have nothing to do with this algorithm (laughs) (laughs) but think about how much you don't like zuckerberg and give us a review (laughs) facebook and their ilk so i don't have a good transition so i'm just gonna say should we transition to the should we just jump right in yeah all right so our crime today is Maybe one of the most famous crimes in the world. I don't know. That's a big statement, but it's a really, really famous one. And I'm not going to try to build up the suspense, but I will set the scene just a little bit. We're talking in the 50s in the United States um, in a little town called Holcomb, Kansas, uh, November 15th, early morning of 1959. Um, Holcomb, Kansas is a little town in western Kansas all the way out towards, I think, Colorado is what on, is on the other side. Really sparsely populated out there. And <laughs> Andrew's going to fact check me here. <laughs> you just blew my mind. Like, is Kansas connected to Colorado? Totes. So I'm just looking at a map of the U.S. All right, here we go. Oh, my God. How that's, can this be? That's how geography works. <laughs> <laughs> An entire square side of Colorado is Kansas. I can't. <laughs> yes. So this is way out there. You know, when people think of Kansas, I think they think of Kansas City, and rightly so, because Kansas City is the best and also happens to be where my origin story began. But right now we're in western kansas really sparsely populated farming communities and holcomb kansas in 1959 had a population of 270 so a little town i think andrew and i can both picture towns like this but for a lot of people maybe they haven't ever even been to a town this small tight community farming community in the early morning of november 15th that day the family of the clutters um, was at home as they normally were There were four of the family members living at home at that time. The father, Herbert Clutter, who was 48. Um, He was a pillar of the community, was a farmer who was well-known and really well-liked by his farmhands, and he had many. He had a, a big established farm. His wife, Bonnie Clutter, who was 45, who was a stay-at-home mom, and she had trained as a nurse, but after her fourth child was born, she suffered a severe bout of postpartum depression. And so reports kind of vary that she was, from the extreme of she was basically an invalid, to no, she was just a normal person who struggled with depression, and that was part of her identity. Their children, Nancy Clutter, who was 16, and was in high school, was very well liked. She was in the 4-H, kind of a typical small town, Midwest, Western kind of kid. And her little brother, the youngest of the family, whose name was Kenyon, Kenyon Clutter, he was 15. And the family was in their home that evening and 
again, I think maybe some people now already know the crime that we're speaking of. Um, that evening, two, two perpetrators broke into the house and they came in through an unlocked door. Again, small town Kansas in the 50s. People didn't lock their doors in communities like this. And honestly, I grew up in neighboring Missouri and I knew a lot of people who lived out in the country who also did not lock their doors. Um, and two perpetrators broke in and they they proceeded to murder the family. So I'm going to go into more detail, obviously, but this is the crime that we're talking about here. Um, it's been popularized in the, the cultural conversation through one very famous book, which Andrew's going to talk about later. But that evening, we have two kind of career criminals. The first one, his name is Perry Edward Smith, who at that time was 31, and a friend and former um, cellmate in prison, Richard Hickok, who was 28 at that time. And the story of how all of this kind of came together and so randomly at the time is, is fairly interesting. So Perry Smith, um, again, 31, had had a really rough life from an early age. His father was abusive and his mother was an active alcoholic throughout his childhood. They divorced when Smith was young and he, his mother, and his three siblings began kind of a nomadic life. They initially moved to San Francisco and they kind of bounced around. When Smith was 13, his mother died. And, you know, I think you could say that she died of alcoholism, but really she died from asphyxiating on her her own vomit when she was passed out. Um, so a really sad story. Um, from then, things just got worse, um, which is kind of saying a lot because up to this point, it had already been very bad. Um, Smith went to live in a Catholic orphanage, um, and the nuns there reportedly abused him physically and sexually. I guess he suffered from bedwetting. Um, throughout his childhood. And so that was something that at that time, you, I guess nuns thought that they could beat that out of a kid or like he was doing it on purpose. He later talked about having been malnourished as a child, which damaged his kidneys. And I think he had a problem with bedwetting or mm -hmm. um, incontinence for most of his life. After the Catholic orphanage, um, he was moved to another, I think, Salvation Army orphanage, and reportedly a caretaker there tried to drown him. Um, I think it's not news to a lot of people that during that time, these kind of group care facilities for children were rife with all kinds of abuses, um, and he certainly didn't escape that fate. After he left that orphanage, he went back to live with his father, and I think for a time he was excited and anticipating this move um, to get to be with his dad. Again, he had left his father when he was young, so maybe he had kind of idealized what that would be like. And they moved to a farm, I think, in Colorado. Um, and I believe just the two of them or he, his younger brother, and his father. But gradually, his father became more abusive, and I think as he entered his teen years, and as teens are wont to do, became, you know, assertive and asserted his own ideas and his own needs, and they began to clash more and more, um, and it became violent. So at 
16, he went off on his own and he joined the Merchant Marines. And so that is kind of his youth in a nutshell, very traumatic, very nomadic. His cellmate or the man who he met in prison um, during one of his stints and Perry Smith had, again, was kind of a career criminal, petty crimes, robbery, things like that. Um, So he was kind of in and out of prison. And in one of these stints, he met Richard Hickok, who went by Dick. He was 28 at the time of, of the murders that we're talking about. And he, in contrast to Smith, had had a pretty uneventful childhood. Um, his parents were married. He lived in eastern Kansas, and I think he went to Olathe. Olathe. I should know that because I think I have relatives in that town, but <laughs> sorry for mispronouncing. Um, but it's kind of like on outside of Kansas City, Kansas, but on that part of the state. And, you know, it was reported that his parents were kind of strict, but that generally he had a pretty happy childhood. He was an athlete at school and a really popular student with the other students. He was really known for his ability to charm people. That is one thing that is mentioned in pretty much every report about him. And that trait kind of stayed consistent throughout his life. He had hopes of going to college and playing sports at the college level, but his family wasn't financially able to send him to school. Then he had kind of a defining moment when he was 19. He was in a really serious car accident and it, it caused what we would call now traumatic brain injuries. He ha- had a lot of head injuries. Um, according to his younger brother, Hickok was never really the same after that. And I think now, I don't know that there was that much known about it at the time, but now we know that severe brain injuries can cause personality changes and all kinds of changes. And his brother reported that he did. He had personality changes. He also became very self-conscious about his appearance. Um, He had been known not only for his charm, but for being handsome. And so he was kind of, you know, that boy that everybody wanted to get to know. The girls wanted to date him. The guys wanted to be friends with him. And Mm -hmm. he was left with some disfiguring injuries on his face. So, you know, that changed his life in a lot of different ways and was kind of a turning point. He married young right around the time of that accident and had some kids. The marriage ended in divorce. He had some, you know, blue collar jobs of differing kinds. He was a mechanic for a while and he didn't really start getting into crime until like his early 20s. Um, And it was usually things like, you know, scams or confident. Again, his charm. He used his charm. So he would defraud people. He would um, kite checks with which is what they called it back then. I don't know if people know what that means, but basically he would forge checks or he would go into a home that he had been invited to, maybe swipe some blank checks and then go around writing them and getting, you know, it's not like now when they have the Mm -hmm. machines and they can see what's in your bank account. (laughs) It was just done on trust in these small little towns. And so he would take advantage of that trust and that's kind of how he would get money. And so again, he was kind of in and out of, jail as well and after his first the divorce with his first wife you know he started to kind of unravel or maybe that was a trigger of sorts so these two kind of came together in prison and and then smith was out kind of again doing his own thing trying to go straight hickok was released a little bit later also kind of ostensibly trying to go straight but another cellmate that 
that Hickok had had while he was in prison, who had once lived in Holcomb and had worked on the Clutter's farm. And it was from this cellmate that Hickok first learned about the farm and the Clutter's. And in that conversation, you know, the seed of an idea came to be. So I think that Hickok had kind of a fantasy, really, about moving to Mexico after he got out. You know, he had children, but he wasn't much of a father. I think he saw himself kind of moving away, living this kind of easy life in Mexico on the beaches. I don't know, drinking margaritas, whatever people dream about. He had this dream of living this different kind of life and not going back to being a mechanic in eastern Kansas. And so that fantasy kind of grew and attached itself to this idea of the farm. And the um, the cellmate had mentioned that this farmer was very prosperous. And Hickok asked him, does he have a safe? And the cellmate said, yeah, yeah, he has a he has a safe. And he keeps a lot of money in there, just kind of offhandedly. Now, this really, like, gave flight to his fantasy. And from that point on, according to the cellmate, whose name I just found is Floyd Wells, um, Hickok became pretty obsessed with the farm and the family and, and kind of what things they had there. So by the time Hickok was released, he had in his mind that there's a farm there's a family, there's a safe, and there's $10,000 in the safe. Now, you know, there was no substance to this. This came from a farmhand who had once lived there and claimed to have knowledge. I mean, I think, you know, we can all kind of imagine how much credence we would give to some, some cell banter between criminals. But Hickok yeah, put a lot... It's $10,000 and 1950s money. Right. Because that's still a decent amount today, but like... It was a fortune. Yeah. And I think... I usually do the conversion. Oh, I have a different conversion here. So it was about 10 times the amount. So about what would have been about $100,000. So yeah. at that time, it would have been enough to really go to Mexico and never work again, which I think was his fantasy. But also part of his fantasy was he didn't want to get caught, obviously, as most criminals don't. And so he came up with this idea of leaving no witnesses behind. And in his mind, he was not a killer. He was charming. He was a people person. He was, you know, a small time crook. So he wanted to find someone who he could commit the crime with who would do the dirty work, so to speak. And so he called upon his former cellmate, Perry Smith, who had bragged, I think, while they were cellmates about a murder that he had done prior to being incarcerated that time. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's there's speculation. I don't think that that was actually true. But again, it's like things that people say when they're in prison um, and how little they probably are related to the truth. But he had taken it as fact. And I think you know, Smith's behavior led him to believe that he was capable of that. And so he reached out to Smith and Smith had been trying to, again, go straight. But Hickok was very persuasive, not just in this moment, but it was, again, the charm. It was one of his characteristics. 
And he sold this idea of the road trip to Mexico to Smith and convinced him to go along with him on this ride. And so the day of November 14th, 1959, the two of them connected and they drove the 400 miles across Kansas to Holcomb. And if you've ever driven across Kansas, you know, like, it's a long ass drive and nothing. There's nothing. So they started um, midday and they got into town late in the evening, close to midnight. And they had some trouble finding the place. Again, no Google Maps. We're in the 50s here. But they finally find the location based on the directions that uh, Floyd had given him in prison. And they get to the house and, you know, reports vary, but Perry Smith kind of stated that at that point he wanted to back out, but they were in it together. Now, this is, I think, the fourth one in a row that we've done, Andrew, where we've talked about the folie a deux, or my mm-hmm. French pronunciation is very bad, but this idea that two personalities come together and almost form like a third personality. And that's exactly what Perry Smith describes happening is that Hickok was just very into doing this, getting the money, had sold this kind of fantasy. And then at that point, something in him just kind of went on autopilot. So again, they enter the house through an unlocked door and they go immediately and find Herb Clutter because they want to find the safe. So they go to the master bedroom, they wake up Herb And um, he goes out quietly trying to keep everyone asleep. And they begin questioning him about the safe. And he says, there is no safe. And that was actually true. So one thing that Floyd Wells didn't know and Hickok and Smith didn't know is that Clutter was well known in the town for never dealing in cash. He always dealt in checks which I think at that time was maybe kind of uncommon, but it was his practice because it helped him keep track of his finances. Mm -hmm. Um, He paid his farmhands with checks. He did everything with checks. So when he was telling them that there was no safe, he was being truthful. You know, he offered to give whatever he had of value to the intruders, just hoping to get them to leave. I think in time, they either believed that he was telling the truth or he wasn't going to crack. So at that point, his wife, Bonnie, had woken up and come in. People are waking up. So they bind Herb downstairs in the basement where they had taken him. And then they take Bonnie upstairs into another bedroom and they bind her. And then the children, they go and they bind each of the children. And so At that point, again, we only have their statements to go on. No one really knows what happened in that house besides the two perpetrators Mm -hmm. and the people who are no longer here. And forensics wasn't at the point then that it is now, obviously. So, you know, now in a case, we get these kind of advanced reconstructions of they went to this room and then they went to this You know, in this case, we really only have the word of the perpetrators, but they move through the house. At that point, they start, I think, trying to just cut their losses and they're looking for other valuables that they could steal. This will just be a regular robbery, but they're very frustrated. You know, they've driven a long way in their own minds. They must have that background knowledge that they've already decided they're not leaving witnesses. So they're going to do this very big crime for them it's a huge leap on the crime spectrum from anything that they've done before um and they're not 
they're not leaving with that huge payday that they had been counting on. So internally, mm-hmm. they're frustrated, like with each other, with the situation, with themselves, maybe. So they're kind of moving around the house, looking for things to to take. And also, I think still asking. I think there's still a part of them that is hoping that there may be a safe somewhere and that they might crack, like if they're tied up or whatnot. But in the end, they spent a decent amount of time there. They realized that they were they were only going to get what they got. And, and then it became time to eliminate the witnesses. And I think also emotionally they were worked up again. Like, I don't think regret is the right word because that implies some remorse. But like uh-huh. a deep, deep sense of frustration with the situation, which, you know, nonsensically they then took out on the victims who had not done anything to create the situation. And so according to the story that that the perpetrators gave they went to herb first and i think at that point he realized that they were not gonna leave them and i think he started struggling and fighting and so smith slit his throat um initially i think to get him to be quiet and then Mm -hmm. when that didn't kill him he shot him in the head and then they proceeded to move through the different victims and killed them in the same manner. All of them were shot in the head one at a time. And again, sources differ, but it seems like the the most um, reliable information is that Herb was killed first, then Kenyon, who was also in the basement with his father, and then they went upstairs and killed Nancy and then killed Bonnie, the wife, last Smith always confessed to killing the men and first, but also doing those murders himself. Initially, Smith claimed that he didn't kill the women, um, Mm -hmm. that Hickok had done that. But then Hickok said that Smith had done it. And later Smith said, yeah, he did them all. Um, But he wouldn't testify to that in court. So again, like very unreliable information in the end, though, they were both charged with all four murders. They were all they were both culpable. And another little note here, too, in, in the course of that evening, um, Smith claimed that Hickok, he had found Hickok in Nancy, the daughter's room, prepared or about to rape her and that he prevented that crime from happening. And again, it's hard to know, but it lines up. Hickok was known to have a pretty exclusive attraction to older teens, mid to older teens. There's a official word for that, which is not coming to me right at the top of my head. It's not pedophile. There's a specific name for that age range. And he was known through his life to pretty exclusively um, seek out people in that age range. So that kind of lines up with the truth. And I think what came out of that then is this kind of impression of Hickok being kind of the classic sociopath and Smith being actually having some kind of moral compass and and having emotions and compassion and yet still able to commit this crime. So that's the crime i mean it's it's pretty straightforward it's kind of 
chilling to think of how little time taking four lives takes. And in this mm -hmm. case, you know, snuffing out most of an entire family. I alluded to some other family members who weren't there. And there were two other clutter children. Um, there were two other daughters. Ivana, who was 23 at the time and married and living with her own family. And Beverly, who was 20 and away at college. And, you know, they managed to survive this not being home at the time. They have led very private lives. And I was able to see that both of them passed away in the last few years. But Ivana became a teacher and Beverly became a nurse, trained to be a nurse like her mother. And that's, that's how she worked um, or what she worked in for her life. A couple of things of note here before I hand it over to Andrew is, again, we talk a lot about the different technologies or the methods or the way that um, investigations were done at different time periods in the past. And a thing of note here is that the assistant chief of police was a really keen photographer just as a hobby in his life. It was something that he liked to do. And so he made sure to document the crime scene. And that was really early days for forensic photography. Um, but that was something that he was sure to do. Um, and I don't know if it had been a practice because I don't know that this town had ever seen a crime like this. But the images that he captured in doing that were really crucial in the trial because one of the pictures captured a bloody boot print that was not visible mm -hmm. to the naked eye when when they were kind of looking through and so the the perpetrators left um, as they had come and left the scene and began basically fleeing what they did because you know they thought they were going to be leaving this crime loaded with money they would go directly to mexico and that was not the case they managed to get a small portable radio that belonged to kenyan a pair of binoculars that belonged to Herb, and less than $50 in cash, which is about $470 today. Terrible. Um, yeah. So, you know, all the more senseless. I mean, it would not be, it would not be not senseless if they had gotten a lot of money, but there's just something that is extra sad when it was for nothing and so they go off into the night um into the dark quiet kansas with 50 dollars and two things that they would need to pawn if they were to turn them into any kind of money um that definitely wasn't going to get them to mexico so what they did is they kind of roamed around the country doing more of these kind of petty crimes that they had been doing before to get money so scams where hickok would again like write a bad check and get cash and he he still had that charm and so they did that for almost six weeks they went to mexico they went to florida they went to kansas city twice and eventually they went to nevada they went to las vegas and that is then where they were apprehended on the 30th of december of that same year and I say that photograph is crucial because one of the things that they found on them when they picked them up was a, a box that Smith had shipped to himself from Mexico. And in the box were a pair of boots and the boots matched up with that boot print perfectly. So 
that was that was kind of the apprehension of them. But also Floyd Wells, the old cellmate that we had talked about, you know, he was in prison. He had made mistakes in his life, but he was not a killer, apparently. And so when he heard about the murders and at that point, it was huge news all over the nation because Mm -hmm. just so grisly, so unexpected, so senseless. He had heard about the the murders in jail, and he immediately went to authorities and told them what he knew about Hickok and how obsessed he had been with the farm and the money and the safe and all of that. Um, so authorities were already kind of on to Hickok and just kind of not quite getting to them in time. Um, but then they finally caught up with them in Las Vegas where, where they arrested them. Once they were caught and they knew that the boot print, uh, Smith then folded and confessed and then Hickok confessed pretty soon after once they knew that you know they were they were done they were caught and again I think just in kind of a peak as to how much things have changed in the time since this happened on March 29th 1960 they were convicted after the jury deliberated for 40 minutes so if you think of you know a crime of the century that might happen now a huge case a big case and the idea that it would make it into court four and a half months later, I mean, that's almost incomprehensible. And not only make it to court, but then the trial would happen and a jury would come back and yeah. And some folks said a lot was made at the time of the fact that the jury only deliberated for 40 minutes. And I said that they got less than $50 um, in the crime. But some people said at the time that the jury deliberated one minute for every dollar that they stole. Um, and so people felt very strongly that they kind of, they they received justice, that mm-hmm. justice should move swiftly. Um, you know, I think motions were made to take the trial outside of that little area because how could you get an unbiased um, jury? But, you know, Kansas is, it's not quite Florida or Texas, but you know, it's fire and brimstone there, and the people weren't going to allow that. They wanted a jury of peers, meaning peers of the people who had been murdered. So it, the trial took place in Garden City, which is a somewhat larger town nearby, just a couple miles down the road, and it happened very quickly. And then again, in a comparison today, um, they received the death penalty. I think that they did make some appeals, but... They were both hanged in Lansing Prison in Kansas on the 14th of April, 1964. So less than five years later, trial, conviction, appeals, and sentence, and then execution. Smith's last words were, I think it is a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. I say this especially because there's a great deal I could have offered society. I certainly think capital punishment is legally and morally wrong. So, you know, he was kind of seen again as this sensitive soul and a lot was made of how he wrote poems and painted pictures in prison after. And um, and I think he saw himself that way. And, and he really, in a weird way, he kind of saw the, the real um, pathos in his own story. And, and I think he he bought it to such an extent that he thought that pathos should kind of get him out of the consequences of his actions. But again, in, in all that has come since then, 
it seems like his belief in this and his his he didn't see the irony i guess he wasn't in on on the joke he he saw the the pathos in his life but he didn't see the irony in saying that the death penalty was morally wrong but killing four people like apparently not super bad yeah i feel like nothing has made me question my own stance on the death penalty more than this quote yeah. where i'm like i'm glad they killed him yeah yeah not a lot of insight or you know I, I do think that you know we talk a lot about mitigating factors in different cases and you know in in the case of leopold and Loeb and the affluenza and they tried to claim that they had had such disadvantages but i mean you look at a childhood like this smith had kind of the maybe not the worst childhood that we'll ever cover in any of our episodes, but you know, it was, it was a pretty bad one when you see, and you know, I did see some crime scene images of the family. And again, just this idea of like almost annihilating the entire family. I mean, they would have, if the other two had been there, it wasn't mm -hmm. a question of like having mercy. Yeah. It's just, it makes you think about what does it mean? What is it for? Why would we do it? Um, but certainly this quote is not the quote that I think would turn anyone's <laughs> belief system on its head. <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah. it is sad, but like you're still responsible for your choices. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I think that, well. I, I mean, I can only really think of like one where I would be like, this kid never had a chance like there was like ed kemper i mean ed kemper was never going to be anything but a monster based on his upbringing like it was so deeply fucked up but this is bad but i mean this kind of upbringing i'm sadly like very sadly happened and still happens to a lot of people um and yeah they don't go on to kill four people yeah and it was for money like mm -hmm. it was always for money like not that it, not to say that that's better or worse than killing for bloodlust as like serial killers but like the rationalness of deciding a hundred grand is worth killing a whole family is somehow like darker because you know like when you have the people that turn into monster serial killers it's like I mean that's just so fucked up beyond repair and yeah I'm sure the childhood didn't help but like yeah you had a bad childhood but you are not insane mm -hmm. and you're rationally making the choice that murder is worth it yeah for money yeah yeah and Ugh. I mean I, it's codified into our legal system in the sense of like you know, first degree, second degree, heat of the moment, cold-blooded, like all of those things carry different weights. And so that's that's how our society sees those things morally and then that's how it works its way through. So yeah, if you can prove that something was cold-blooded and I think it doesn't really get much more cold-blooded than this. And Smith had another really creepy quote that he said during, I think his very first interrogation when he confessed, he was talking about Herb, and again, Herb was known as a very good guy. And I'm just paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, he was a good guy. He was quiet and helpful, and I liked him a lot. 
up until the moment I slit his throat. Yeah, he, I mean, could be a sociopath as well. For sure, I get the sense that Smith is doing more manipulating than he pretends to be. You know, I think he he pretends to be this kind of like straightforward, like whatever, I'm a sensitive, like carpenter poet type or whatever. And that Hickok was the really manipulative, glib, charbing, like kind of the stereotypical sociopath. But I think that there was a lot more to Smith than he let on. It's just that his flavor of manipulation was that like victim, martyr, like woe is me kind of flavor, which comes off as like a lot more pitiful. Mm -hmm. And I think Hickok was just, he was confident, he was glib, he was charming, he was, you know, humorous, like he would, he would make jokes during his interrogation. And so he comes off as a lot more like scary kind of like, yeah, you know, you just did this where I think people would read Smith as being more remorseful maybe than he was um, because of the whole poor me thing. Yeah. So I guess moving over to the other side. Mm -hmm. Never miss a foul detail. Follow us at most foul pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you listen to the mini episode, RIP, (laughs) (laughs) where uh, Kirsten and I shared our inciting incidents, you might remember that the book In Cold Blood, which Truman Capote wrote about this case, was a huge one for me. Mm-hmm. And reflecting on it, I think it's probably the scariest book I've ever read. And I read a lot of horror, but there's something yeah. about this. And I mean, something about as someone who grew up on a farm, yeah. yes, <laughs> whose yes. dad hired a lot of vagrants and down on their out down on their luck folks to help work this hit home. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And so, Yeah, I'm a firm believer that this is probably the scariest thing I've ever read. Wow, that's saying a lot because you read a lot of scary stuff. Yeah, just, well, I mean, Capote's a great writer and just the storytelling, the way he put it together, which I'll talk about, but. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Capote learned about the quadruple murder before the killers were captured. And he made his way to Kansas to write about the crime. And just as an interesting bit of trivia, and it'll come up later, for folks who haven't seen the film Capote, he was accompanied to Kansas by his childhood friend and fellow author Harper Lee. And they interviewed residents and investigators assigned to the case and took more than 8,000 pages of notes. It's incredible. And I read that he called Harper and asked her to come as a Southerner that she would have sort of the, like, commonality that people would trust her more than they would trust him. Mm-hmm. And so he, like, strategically asked her to come, not just because they were friends and she was a great writer, but because as a Southerner and sort of the ruralness of the case, he thought it would help. Mm-hmm. Like Kirsten said, about six weeks after the murders, Hickok and Smith were arrested and a few years later, executed. 
pretty quick timeline, but before they were executed, Capote conducted personal interviews with both of the killers, and they're sort of their extended networks. He included letters from Smith's army buddy, Don Cullivan, who was present at the trial. Ultimately, Capote spent six years working on In Cold Blood, which was unconventional for its time extreme levels of research and so Mm -hmm. new journalism as a genre and style of writing developed during this time in which the novel was written and Capote became a pioneer in showing how it could be used effectively to create a unique nonfiction story so kind of in the Leopold and Loeb case we mentioned that this wasn't necessarily the very first use of new journalism is sort of its technical name but Mm -hmm. this was the big one this was the one that went viral (laughs) it captured the country's just utter curiosity and i mean he spent those six years and i mean you can tell the the novel's incredible Mm -hmm. and and scary so scary (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, new journalism is a style of writing where the author writes the nonfiction novel or story while it's developing in real time. And so this is exactly what Capote did as he followed the court, interviewed the murderers, those who were close to their families to create the story while it was still unfolding in the real world. And In Cold Blood was an instant success. It was first published in 1965 as a four-part serial in The New Yorker. And in Kansas, The New Yorker sold out immediately. Mm. So it was national fervor, but Kansas specifically, yeah, I mean, it was unthinkable. Yeah. So then in 1966, it was published as a novel, and it's the second best-selling true crime book in history. Mm. Second behind... Uh, Helter Skelter. Ding, ding, ding. But yeah, Helter Skelter about the Manson murders was number one. Back to Capote. He was lauded for his eloquent prose, extensive detail, and triple narrative, which describes the lives of the murderers, the victims, and the members of the community. Mm -hmm. So even though Capote was disappointed that the book didn't win the Pulitzer Prize, it's regarded by most critics as a pioneering work in the true crime genre. Now, before we get into adaptations, I wanted to talk to you, the listeners. (laughs) If you haven't read this book, you must. (laughs) It was a pivotal moment for me and my true crime journey. And if you have read it, DM us, email us, tell us what you think, because I'd really love to know. This book was a huge part (laughs) of me turning into who I am. Mm Mm-hmm. So looking at the adaptations, there have been three film adaptations based on or about the creation of the book. Mm -hmm. The first one is 1967's In Cold Blood, and it's an American neo-noir crime film written, produced, and directed by Richard Brooks. It stars Robert Blake as Smith and Scott Wilson as Hickok. Now felt like we must mention that in real life Blake was tried and acquitted of the 2001 murder of his second wife Bonnie Lee Bakley Um, and I don't want to go into too many details because it could be an episode in and of itself but it felt insane to not mention that the man playing this is also probably a murderer yeah 
a little on the nose. <laughs> but back to the film. So it was shot on location at sites where the crimes occurred, including the actual clutter home, which feels equally absurd. But it also, I guess, does speak to the realism of the book. Like, yeah. I, it, I don't know that you could do that today, but... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a just level kind of, of amazing that it was allowed in a town yeah, like that. Thinking of the time, and I'm sure the right amount of money to the right amount of people. Yeah. Anything's yeah. possible. But it was nominated for four Academy Awards, director, original score, cinematography, and adapted screenplay. It also was very well received by critics. Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars, writing, quote, at times, one feels this is not a movie, but a documentary where the events are taking place now, end mm-hmm. quote. Mm-hmm. It's noted by film historians as an early example of Hollywood's new realism, and it was selected in 2008 for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. So before we go to the next adaptation of the novel, this movie was adapted into a true crime drama TV miniseries in 1996, starring Anthony Edwards, Eric Roberts, and Sam Neill. Let's just so, take a bunch of men in Hollywood and throw them together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An interesting mix of folks. <laughs> but it still sort of continued the success. The miniseries received critical acclaim and two Primetime Emmy Award nominations, including Outstanding Miniseries. So while it is a weird mix of folks, it was successful. Um, But back to the adaptation. So the second adaptation of Capote's book focused on his experiences writing the story and his subsequent fascination with the murders. And that's the 2005 biographical film Capote, starring the late Philip Seymour Hoffman in the titular role. And it primarily follows the events during the writing of the novel. So that was released in September of that year, coinciding with Capote's actual birthday, And the film received major acclaim from critics, especially for Hoffman's leading performance. It won several awards, including the Academy Award for Best Actor. Mm -hmm. Beyond the critics, it was a commercial success. It made about $50 million off of a budget of seven. Wow. So made a lot of money as well. And then interestingly, there was a third adaptation of of the book and sort of the story, which is the film Infamous, which came out the very next year in 2006 which is a weird thing that hollywood does Mm -hmm. and it happens again and again and again where like at least two studios will be making the same story at the same time yeah but this one starred toby jones as capote sandra bullock daniel craig lee pace jeff daniels and sigourney weaver and keeping up with the trend It was also fairly well received, though not to the same levels as Capote. But in fairness, that film coming out one year after Capote, there's no way it could have succeeded in the same way as if it was its own project. But that said, Jones did win the London Film's Critic Circle Award for British Actor of the Year, as well as Best Actor Award at the Ibiza International Film Festival. Daniel Craig was nominated for the Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Actor. So, again, a pretty successful movie. I never watched that one. I never even heard of it, but I love Lee Pace. Oh my gosh. I mean, 
not to take a huge tangent, but I'm watching Foundation on Apple TV and Lee Pace is in it and he is shirtless many times and it's just incredible. I think you guys should get married. He is an incredible actor. I don't want to just uh, objectify his beauty, but he's like an incredibly good and compelling actor. But then, oh my gosh, he's so hot. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> but... I'm yeah, sure he's really crime. nice to his mom too. Yes, he's a full, a full human. I mean, uh, well, yeah, we'll have a whole conversation off pod. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so into the crime. So lastly, there was a novel uh, by J.T. Hunter in 2016 called *In Colder Blood*, and it discusses Hickok and Smith's possible involvement in the 1959 murders of Christine and Cliff Walker and their two children at their home in Osprey, Florida. So if you'll allow me, Kirsten, to take a step over to your side briefly. Yes. It's pretty fascinating. So authorities believe that 24-year-old Christine Walker arrived at the family home around 4 p.m. on December 19, 1959, and she was raped and murdered by gunshot. Her husband, Cliff, who was 25, arrived with their three-year-old son, Jimmy, and their one-year-old daughter, Debbie. Cliff was ambushed and killed, and then Jimmy and Debbie were also murdered. So physical evidence left at the scene included a bloody cowboy boot print, a cellophane strip from a cool cigarette wrapper, K-O-O-L, not cool, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and a fingerprint on the bathtub faucet handle. A serial killer named Emmett Monroe Spencer confessed to the murders, but the confession was discredited by Sarasota County Sheriff Ross Boyer, who labeled Spencer a pathological liar. Um, His confession was, quote, deemed to be cleverly constructed from real murders written up in the newspaper and true crime novels that he liked to read, end quote. Police never identified motive, and 587 people were suspects at one time or another. So... The case remains unsolved as of last month, but in 2012, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office began investigating possible links between this case and the murder of the Clutter family. Now, in In Cold Blood, Capote mentions this case and ultimately dismisses the possible connection to Hickok and Smith. Records and witness accounts collected by Kansas and Florida investigators show several factual contradictions to Capote's account. Mm. So... The sheriff's office admitted that Hickok and Smith had been considered suspects as far back as 1960. Mm. So after killing four members of the Clutter family, 34 days before the Walker murders, Smith and Hickok fled to Florida in a stolen car and were spotted at least a dozen times between Tallahassee and Miami. The pair checked into a Miami Beach hotel about four hours from Osprey and checked out on the morning of the Walker murders. At some point that day, Smith and Hickok bought items at a Sarasota department store just a few miles from the Walker home. One witness said that the taller of the two men had a scratched up face and polygraphs cleared them of the Walker murders. But as we know, polygraphs are inaccurate and not admissible in court. And according to sheriff's records, the Walkers had been considering buying a 1956 Chevrolet Bel Air, the same kind of stolen car that Smith and Hickok were driving through Florida. Mm. And it's therefore believed that Smith and Hickok may have gained entry to the Walker home on the pretense of selling the car. 
And then in December of 2012, Sarasota County investigators announced that they were seeking an order to exhume Smith and Hickok's body from Mount Muncie Cemetery in the hopes that mitochondrial DNA extracted from their bones could be matched to semen found at the Walker home. Um, so their bodies were exhumed and DNA extracted, but Kansas authorities stated that they would process the samples taking high priority, but they were unable to find a match in the DNA, but only partial DNA could be retrieved, partially due to the degradation of the DNA sample that had been in storage for so long. Investigators state that they still remain the most viable suspects. So just really interesting. Yeah, it is. I mean, and then, you know, you always, I, I, I don't know, maybe other people don't, but it's hard to start thinking like, well, if this, if this, it's just why would they deny it if they had, like they were already going to die, you know? Yeah, I mean, my assumption is that odds are good they didn't do it mm-hmm. especially i mean the dna didn't match but they're it was so degraded and they right. were only able to get partial dna from the bodies anyway plus the sample was degraded mm-hmm. odds are it's a coincidence but how i mean yeah. what a coincidence yeah. so sorry for the tangent but it, it was so interesting as i fell into that rabbit hole i was like yeah. i've got to include some of this yeah definitely and it, it doesn't have its own culture of its own, so we're never going to really talk about that case. But yeah. the odds are just crazy high, and that's not to say that that means they're guilty, but ugh, so weird. Yeah. But back to the episode at hand, the murders were also featured in an episode of A Crime to Remember, a documentary series that talks about notorious crimes. Um, and it's found its way to the music industry. <laughs> So in 2016, UK pop rock band Bastille released their album Wild World, which debuted at number one on the UK albums chart, number four on the US Billboard Top 200, and number two on both the US Top Alternative Albums and the US Top Rock Albums. Uh, incidentally, I've seen them perform live at a festival in Denmark. <laughs> brag, Love brag, them. brag. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, But this album features the song Four Walls, The Ballad of Perry Smith, where the band comments on the case and muses on capital punishment, which the UK abolished in 1998. So some of the lyrics include, quote, These four walls will keep you until you face the rope. You've only these four walls before they in cold blood hang you up. And now we're faced with two wrongs. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. End quote. Mm. And when asked by a fan on Twitter which song was their favorite on the album, the band responded with these four walls. Well, I guess they responded, and this was the tweet. So, quote, four walls, period. Read in cold blood, period. (laughs) End quote. Nice. So uh, we've added that to our most foul Spotify playlist, so be sure to check it out. But lastly, still in the musical realm, queer Canadian country musician Orville Peck, Uh, included the song Kansas Remembers Me Now on his 2019 debut album Pony. And the song was written from the point of view of Perry Smith being questioned after the Clutter murder. So it's a classic murder ballad, um, similar to the ones we discussed in our There's Something About Bloody Mary episode. Mm -hmm. And it features the lyrics, quote, Nothing left to hide, nothing left to hide. Clutter's gone. Do I regret it? Not a thing now that Dick's by my side. They said, why, oh, why did you do it? 
But if I die, don't you cry, because Kansas remembers me now. Kansas remembers me now. End Mm. quote. Mm. And with that, I'm at the end of my notes. What a fascinating episode. Yeah, it's amazing. And it's interesting, too, how some similar themes keep coming up in all of these kind of pair killings that we've covered over the last few episodes. It seems like the question is raised of what is the real relationship between them? And in some cases, it's known that there was a sexual relationship or some of them it was just a romantic relationship. Um, Others, it's not known. And I, I feel like in this case, it kind of comes up in the sense that Um, it does seem like Smith had some attachment to Hickok that maybe wasn't sexual, but romantic or something that was in that gray area between friendship and romance, um, because he does seem to have been charmed by him and he was charming. And I think people like that, they can turn it off and on and they can aim it wherever they want. And it seems like he definitely used that to get Smith to do things but smith kind of took it to heart in a way Mm -hmm. um i don't know well it's just my own like absolutely wild speculation based on nothing but i could also see smith being channeling anger to a quote-unquote good family Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. has it all when he had none of it yeah yeah i mean that doesn't seem like a stretch to imagine because yeah so just a terrible senseless crime like they all are yeah and if you haven't read it or if you're not a reader maybe just watch in cold blood the movie but this is a big one yeah no it's so interesting and i mean the, just the Capote side alone, I feel like is so interesting. You know, did he give Harper Lee enough credit and what was that relationship like? And did he lose his judgment when it came to how he portrayed Perry and Hickok? And like, you know, was he manipulated to a certain extent by Perry Smith? Totally could be. But there, then, you know, it just sort of made this thing in my mind where I was like, what an ally Harper Lee must have been. Yeah. I mean, she's and friends was... with an extremely gay dude. She wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. She's like a hardcore Southerner from decades ago. Yeah. I was like, wow, she must have been cool. Yeah. Seriously. And, you know, of course, this was the year before To Kill a Mockingbird came out. So in her mind, she's got like her own ambitions and probably like the the concept of To Kill a Mockingbird was already floating around in her brain. And she takes however many months out of her life to go on this. I mean, imagine it's just kind of like I wish that my life were like that in some ways. We just we hear about a thing and it's like, hey, Andrew, let's go to Kansas. And we just like decamp. And <laughs> now we're here, yeah. you know, like doing this thing that nobody's done before, like hasn't really been done much before. It's that part of it also is really interesting to me. And I know people didn't love Ghost at a Watchman. Mm-hmm. Well, some people. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was just from misunderstanding mm-hmm. that that was the, f- 
that book was the first draft that eventually turned into To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. And people were so mad that, like, Atticus Finch was racist. Mm. And it's like, well, but that was the first draft. This isn't, like, a sequel. Right. This was a book that she wrote that wouldn't get published. And then she went back to the drawing board and retold the story. And so people were, like, so mad that it, like, Atticus wasn't, like, a shining hero anymore. But it's like... This wasn't after. It evolved, and she never wanted that to come out. Yeah, that was taken against her will. Yeah. Yeah, the end of her life is sad to me, but... uh. But this part of her life, I was like, what a cool woman. Yeah, badass. I mean, she lived life on her own terms for sure. Cool, cool, cool. Well, with that, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Most Vowel. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostvowelpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 